0: Well, good morning Lakeview all right it is so good to see all of you this morning um, well kinda I can see your cars I don't guess I really know who's in which car but it's good to be here with you all this morning I cannot believe it has been 13 or 14 weeks now since we have been able to gather together for one of our normal Sunday morning worship services but Uh, I am glad that you're here this morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my privilege to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, If you want a heads up, you can go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 3. That's where we'll be spending our time, Matthew chapter 3. This season has been a difficult one for everyone. I wanted to take a moment this morning and let you know that we as the staff have been praying for you over these weeks. We've been praying that the Lord would use this time to draw you closer to himself, to strengthen your faith, to shore up the hope that you have in him, and that he would be revealing himself to you in ways that he could not do otherwise. So my prayer is that we come out of quarantine and all of this weird time closer to the Lord, Than we have been before. We're going to be beginning a new series today. Uh, Well, I say it's new. It's actually season two of a series you all began last year before I came called Stuff Christians Believe. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to work our way through our statement of faith. Now, we are an evangelical free church we hold to the efca statement of faith and i'd encourage you if you have our church app you can actually go and pull our statement of faith up right now while we're here now it's not often that i'm going to ask you to pull out your phone while i'm preaching so just go with it here Uh, pull it out get the app uh, look up our statement of faith you can go to the about us section Uh, it's the who we are link and then click on what we believe if you don't have our app you should have our app. Uh, but anyway, if you don't have our app, you can also Google the EFCA Statement of Faith, and uh, your phone can pull that up so that you can look at that as we read through it today. Today, we're going to be looking through the first tenet of our doctrinal statement, which reads this way, and if you've got it, read it with me. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy infinitely perfect and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. You may be asking yourself to point, are we deciding to start a new sermon series through our doctrinal statement? Why do we need to get off into the weeds of... Uh, The particulars of theology. Why don't we go through the book of John or the book of Revelation? Or why don't we go through a a six-week series on on how to be a better husband or a better mom or a better dad? Because, let's face it, we've spent 13 weeks in quarantine alone with our families. (laughs) If you are parked next to my wife, you just heard her say, amen, we need that series. Anyway, so why are we doing this this morning? It's because of one essential truth. It's because what you believe about God shapes the kind of person you become. What you believe in your heart is true of God is going to determine the kind of person you turn out to be. In 2010, two sociology professors from Baylor University published a book called America's Four Gods. And what they found was that basically Americans from whatever religious background can basically fall into four categories Of different kinds of God they believe in. That may not be very surprising, but what is surprising from their study is that based on which of these four categories of God believer you are, they can determine a tremendous amount about the whole rest of your life, the entire rest of your worldview. They found that depending on what kind of God you believe in, they can predict with remarkable accuracy your view of yourself and other humans. Your conception of morality, your posture towards science and the use of money, what you think about evil in the world, the future of mankind, and you guessed it, your political affiliations. What you believe about God determines the kind of person you become. It shapes us. And I don't think that we're here this morning to be shaped into the image of a false god. I think that we gather here this morning around the word of God, sitting in our cars, submitting ourselves to the word of God so that we can be transformed more into the image of the God that we serve. So our big question for today is this, what is God like and what difference does it make? What is God really like and how does that impact the way that I should be living my life? We obviously can't exhaust that question today. That'll take a lifetime for you to figure out. But I do think we see three parts of the answer in Matthew chapter 3. So turn there with me. Matthew chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Will you pray with me and ask for God's help during our time? Father, you have been good to us. You have been gracious. You have revealed yourself not only in your word, but through your son, Jesus Christ, who has made you most fully known and through your spirit that now lives in us. We pray that this morning, as we gaze into your word, our hearts would be confronted and drawn to the true and living God. We pray that we would put away any idols that we have created, any false notions of who you are and what you are like, and that you would change that, shape that, so that we may be shaped into your image. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he of who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locony. People went out, from him, went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan." But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. The other gospels say heaven was torn open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So what is God like, and what difference does that make in your life? Three parts. Number one, God is the sovereign king, so we are to be a people of submission and repentance. God is the sovereign king, so we are to be a people of submission and repentance. John comes preaching, that is, as a herald of one who comes with the authority of the king and with the message of the king in his mouth, and he proclaims that the king is coming. And here's his sermon, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If I had to guess, I would think that if you drove all the way here this morning and I came up and stood behind this little podium and the sum total of my sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and I packed it up and went inside, you might be a little bit confused. You might be wondering what exactly it is you drove out for today. Some of you might just be relieved I didn't go over my time. I feel that. Anyways, John's sermon sounds pretty bare bones. But if we can get what John is saying here, if you can understand what John really means by what he's saying, this is the only sermon you ever need. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, the sovereign rule and the reign of the king of the universe is coming near to us The great promise of the Old Testament, what all of the prophets were looking forward to, the ultimate rule and reign of God himself with his people, is near. And what does he say we should do about it? We should repent. Wait a second. Shouldn't we rejoice? Why didn't he say, shout for joy? But instead he says, Repent, that is, change your mind and your former way of thinking, and thus the behavior that your old way of thinking was producing. Repent. Why does he say that? Because John's message is not to well-meaning prisoners of war who are awaiting the arrival of their king. God's message, or John's message, is to rebels like me and like you who have sought to hijack our little corner of the universe and have it as our own and set ourselves up as God and tell God, no, we're going to do it our way. And John comes with an urgent warning to us this morning. The king is coming. You better change your mind about this rebellion. You better turn around before it's too late. You better put down your weapons and bend the knee to his supreme authority and be welcomed back into the family of the king. This is a warning of coming wrath. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to John. Listen what he says to them. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Biological lineage and religious activity, even getting baptized by John, are not what the king wants. He desires repentance. Turn away from your rebellion. Turn back to God before it is too late. Hear John's warning. When the king gets here, he's bringing a new kind of baptism. John says, I baptize you with water. He's going to be coming baptizing you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Could be translated Holy Spirit fire. The idea is that those who repent, who turn away from their sin, who trust in God, The Holy Spirit and fire comes and purifies. But for those rebels who refuse to lay down their arms, for those who hear that the king is coming and decide, you know what, I still want to be God here. For those, the fire comes as judgment, and they're consumed like chaff. The coming of the kingdom of God is not good news for rebels who refuse to lay down their weapons. It is only good news for those who stop their rebellion and throw themselves at the mercy of the king. That is why John came baptizing for repentance and why the people were being baptized. What they're saying is, we give up. We surrender. We change our minds about this silly little rebellion that we've set up. And we pledge allegiance to the sovereign king. That begs the question of us this morning, how about us? How about you? If God is a sovereign king and we are rebels, then the only logical step is for us to repent and bow our knee to the king. Will we be like these Pharisees and presume on our religious activity or upon the patience of God and figure that we'll be forgiven and escape the wrath to come? Or are we willing to repent of our rebellion, lay down our lives at the feet of the king and trust in the king's mercy? I've found throughout this a time of quarantine not being together, I found that this whole idea of submission to God in every area of my life is far more encompassing than I knew before. I thought I was a patient person. Then I stayed at home all day with my kids and tried to get work done. I learned I was not as patient as I thought I was before. I thought I could be thoughtful and kind. Then I was pushed God says here, are you willing to submit all of that to me? Are you willing to submit your money and how you spend it? Are you willing to submit your job? Tell God to take you wherever he will. Are you willing to submit your parenting? God, lead our families however you will. Are you willing to submit your leisure? God, here is my spare time. Use it as you will. Are you willing to give God your bitterness and your past hurts and your anger and ask him to forgive you and remove it are we willing to submit our whole lives to the rule of this king brothers and sisters let's not be found with weapons in hand when the king returns God is sovereign king of the universe so we are a people who repent we are a people who bear fruit in keeping with repentance and we submit our lives to his kingship number two Who is God or what is God like and why does it matter? God is the eternal trinity, so we are to be a people of love and fellowship. Now that word trinity is not used in scripture, but it's a word that Christians have used throughout our history to describe what it is that we see in scripture, namely that there is one God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons who are all equally divine and God. For instance, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yet here in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus comes to be baptized. Verse 16, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, with whom I, lo- whom I love and with him I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity at the same time, in the same place, doing different things distinct from one another. The Son is in the water, the spirit is descending, God speaks, God the Father speaks from heaven, one God, three persons. Now, I thought about taking this time to try to give you some sort of an illustration, but there's a problem with trying to illustrate the Trinity. Is that the moment you do it, you slip off into some kind of heresy. People have tried to describe the Trinity in all sorts of different ways. The Trinity's like, like an egg. You know, you got the shell and the, the white and the yolk. Well, it breaks down. It doesn't really describe God. Or maybe God is like water, and he, you know, he can be uh, uh, steam or water vapor, or he can be water, or he can be ice. Like That's what God is like. But that breaks down because it's all H2O. What we're saying here is that there are three, God, or there are three persons and one God. The moment we try to water it down or make it something easily understood, we slip off into heresy. And here's the big question, God is eternally triune, what does it matter to our lives? What does that matter outside of the ivory tower of theologians, that God is one God yet three persons? It matters a great deal for at least two reasons, I'm going to give you two. Number one, God's triune nature is the foundation for all human relationships, God's relational character is why we as humans are relational in the first place. Our relational nature is part of what it means for us to be in the image of God. And in the Trinity, we see equality in value and dignity and glory, but distinction in person and function. We see submission to one another. We see faithfulness that lasts for all of eternity. We see perfect love that is unbroken and seeks the good of another. The relationship of the persons within the Trinity is the loving bond from which creation itself derives its concept of relationships. Why does God value love for one another? Why does God value faithfulness? Why does God value unity in diversity? Why does he value mutual submission one to another among the people of God? It's because these characteristics emulate the relationship that exists among the persons of the Trinity. Without the Trinity, such concepts as fidelity and unity and submission are all just a couple of traits we as humans have found useful for survival and procreation. We're free to leave them behind anytime we feel like it. But because God is triune and He is the creator of all life and He made us for relationship, we have a grid that helps us to understand why fidelity is important, why unity is important, why submission and love are important. The Trinity is the standard for healthy family relationships marked by faithfulness and love. The Trinity is the standard for a healthy view of all of the hot-button topics of today. Gender equality. Look to the Trinity for our cues. Racial equality. Look to the Trinity for our cues. Social and economic equality. Look to the Trinity of our view for our views and our cues. Because the Trinity teaches us that value comes not from function, but from essence. The Trinity is the ultimate relationship from which all other relationships derive and of which all other relationships are just blurry reflections. The second reason the Trinity is important for us this morning is that God invites us to be part of His divine family. And I like to stop and tell you in a sermon that I'm preaching. If you don't pick up on anything else that I've said this morning, this is what I would like for you to pick up on. Maybe remember repenting in the back of your mind, but but hear this part. God invites us, me, you, mere humans who are sinful creatures, into his divine family. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. On that day you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now that's a mouthful. But here's what He's saying. When we trust Christ, when we unite ourselves to him, when we repent of sin, and submit ourselves to his kingship and we trust in his forgiveness and trust that his righteousness alone is good for our salvation we are swallowed up into this holy union of the Trinity the son is in the father we are in the son, the the spirit is in us we are invited in whenever we lean on Jesus and we are welcomed into this perfect fellowship This means for us that God becomes our father. Like many of you, I have a lot of baggage when it comes to father figures in my life. But God invites us into this perfect fellowship to know him as a good father. To stop imagining fatherhood based on what we have seen in our lives and start imagining fatherhood based on the character of God. He is always faithful, always kind, always true, always present, always listening, always watching over for over us and always working for our good. And with God as our father, now Jesus is our brother. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His righteousness is our righteousness because we are united to him. And the same spirit that we read descended on Jesus himself to empower him for ministry. The same spirit that descended on Jesus in Matthew 3 is now dwelling in us to convict us, to grow us, to empower us, to lead us into all truth, and to seal us and keep us by our faith for the last day. What we believe about God matters. The doctrine of the Trinity informs your every relationship, especially how you relate to God, who invites us to become part of his family. I was challenged this week, and I I invite you to join me. Just take, take just a minute and think about your relationships. Do they reflect the triune God? Are they marked with unity in the midst of diversity? Are they marked with hospitality and freely welcoming others in? Are they marked with mutual submission, self-giving love? Do, Do they reflect the fellowship and the unity of the triune God? Or do they reflect the utility and the anger and the division of worldly relationships? When it comes to how we think about us and other people relating to one another, do we take our cues from the world... Or will we take our cues from the, trin- from the Trinity? Because of who God is, we must be a people of fellowship and love. Finally, what is God like and what difference does it make? Number three, God is the gracious Savior. So we are to be a people of worship and proclamation. As I studied this week, I wondered about why the Trinity would be so clearly revealed here in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is being baptized. It doesn't seem like a very significant happening in the course of Scripture. Why wouldn't the Trinity be revealed, I don't know, Genesis 1? At least explicit, more explicitly. Why wouldn't it be revealed sometime throughout the Old Testament explicitly? Why wouldn't the Trinity show up at the the crucifixion? or the resurrection? Why here? As if 2020 hasn't been a rough enough year, this is also an election season. I'm sorry for those of you who just realized that. I didn't mean to ruin the rest of your day. Soon, radio commercials and TV ads will be filled with politicians touting their man centered solutions to the problems of this world. And often at the end of these, we're going to hear, I'm so and so, and I approve this message. What God is doing here, when He speaks from heaven, This is my Son whom I love, and with Him I am well pleased. He is saying, I am God, and I approve this man. I approve this message, and I approve the ministry that will come after this. He's saying that all of the works that are going to come from him, all of the teaching that is going to come from him, the death that he is going to die, and the resurrection that he is going to live in, I approve. This is me. This is my son. And this one man the fulfillment of all Old Testament hope comes to pass. Jesus is the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus is the new and better Adam who is obedient to the Father. He's the seed of Abraham who would bless the nations. He is the one who rose up from among the people who would be like the prophet Moses who knew God face to face. He's the faithful king who will shepherd God's people. He's the suffering servant who bore our sin on his shoulders so that we might have his righteousness counted as our own. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the solution to all of the brokenness, all of the death, all the disease, all the corruption, all the greed, all of the racism, and all of the hatred you see in this world. God says, this one is my son, and I love him, and I'm well pleased with him. And I approve his message and his ministry. He is God in the flesh who has come to take all of our junk on himself so that he may have us and we may have him forever. And unlike politicians who make hollow promises that they know they can't keep, Jesus cannot fail. All that he has set out to accomplish will come to fruition through this humble man who came to be baptized by John to relate to and with the people of God and to make the Father known to us. And hear this, he invites us this morning to come to trust that in him, the full sin debt that we owed because of our rebellion has been paid. He invites us today to put down our former ways and to follow him. Now this is good news. The king has come to inaugurate the kingdom to make peace between God and man by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters, it matters what you think about God. If you think that God is only The sovereign genie in the sky waiting to bless you with everything you want. Or if you think that God is only the condemning father in the sky waiting to thump you on the head when you mess up. Or if you think God is powerless and limp wristed and just waiting for you, oh please, will you stop doing bad things, people? If that's what you think about God, you will be formed by that. Your conception of relationships will be ruined. Your relationship with God will be ruined. You will have no understanding of the good news. But if you can put that down for just a little bit and hear that God is the sovereign king, that God is triune for all of eternity, and that God is the gracious Savior, that changes everything about you. And if you don't know God this way, I encourage you today, trust Him. Lay hold to what he offers. Join him in his family. Right now, you can confess your sins sitting in your car. You don't have to go anywhere special, talk to anyone special, pray a special incantation. You can talk to God right now and tell him you're sorry. And you turn away from your rebellious ways. You can lay hold by faith, trusting that in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Believing that he rose from the dead. Victorious over sin and death. You can have God as your father. Jesus as your brother. The Holy Spirit living inside of you. If you'll just trust him today. You can leave here knowing God as a gracious savior. Will you cling to him today? Will you, will you believe what this God is like and allow that to shape the kind of person you become. Will you pray with me? Father, you have been good to be patient and kind, long-suffering with us. We thank you today for your grace that has come in your son Jesus. We're thankful that the moment that we put down our sin and we cling to him by faith, we are forgiven. We are joined to your family. We are empowered and indwelled by the Spirit. I pray this morning that if there is anyone here who does not know you as gracious Savior, that you would work in their hearts to draw them. Awaken faith in their hearts, we pray. And Father, for the rest of us, would you take this picture of God from Matthew chapter 3 and put it down deep in our hearts so that we might be transformed into your image. And we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory among us. Amen.